Welcome on to Mox with FP Wellman. I am your host, Fred Wellman. Oh my God, it's been a crazy week in, in the country. We had an off-year election this week, which went incredibly well in spite of the doom and gloom squad saying it wouldn't. Uh, a lot of stuff going on in Washington, D.C. Mike Johnson's flown off to Paris to give a speech instead of actually keeping the government running. I, I, there's so much to talk about. I got the perfect guest to do with, so let's get on with the show. Welcome, welcome. As I mentioned previously, I am Fred Wellman, your host of On Democracy, the FP Wellman, right here on the Midas Touch Network or wherever you get your podcast source. I hope you'll like, subscribe, click. And I tell you up front now, leave a remark, leave a comment on the uh, video. I love saying hi to y'all. If I'm up on Friday night, we can talk. It'd be great. In the meantime, man, it was really a great week for Democrats. I mean, I keep telling you guys that we are winning. And uh, people keep doubting me, but this was an election uh, that was an undoubtable re reputation of much of the Republican agenda, from reproductive freedom to the incorrectly named parents' right movement, all saw losses. And, and what it is the key was organized opponents won big in a lot of important places. And it was funny, somebody on Twitter the other day, or X, we want to call it today, uh, was saying, oh, well, you know, Jamie Harrison needs to do more. I said, dude, Jamie Harrison did a lot. A lot of this victory in, in, D in Virginia especially was because they had invested heavily. So the Democratic Party is fighting back. It was a great week. But, you know, I think it's time to start looking at the general election and, and what we can expect. It's common knowledge that Trump is far and away the likely GOP nominee. But we can't ignore the many, many legal challenges he faces. Uh, right now, his entire family has testified in New York where he faces a really very, very real chance of his business being dismembered completely. Um, not on top of the fact he has four indictments with 91 charges across the country. So there's a lot going on in the, that goes into this. Uh, and I've been wanting to get this guy on the show for a while. So I'm thrilled to have. We met in D.C. I think last year, right, Shan? So right. Shan, Shanlin Wu, yeah. he's a regular CNN NPR legal analyst, former federal prosecutor, served in the Clinton administration as counsel attorney general, Janet Reno, now nationally known criminal defense lawyer, appears regularly on media, and also here on the Myest Touch Network. Chan, welcome to the show, man. Yeah, good to be here, Fred. Glad we made it work. Yeah, me too. It's great. We love. I love the front seat video. It's great to have you. <laughs> Nothing better than a guest who's <laughs> shoehorning us in on a Friday. <laughs> so I want to start off. I did a video last night for the, the, the Midas Touch Network about this Project 2025. I'm sure you saw the story from the Washington mm. Post talking about, or I think the New York Times did this one, about how he, I mean, he said in another interview, as a matter of fact, Trump is saying very clearly that if he gets elected, he is going to put the DOJ and hire lawyers that are hit that think like him and go after his opponents. I mean, this is some scary stuff and the lega the legalities of it kind of scare me. And can you put that in perspective for us? Like just how crazy this is, the idea of essentially truly weaponizing DOJ and others. Yeah. You know, a uh, saying I like to go back to, cause it's so often misinterpreted is that Shakespeare quote, you know, first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers, which people <laughs> usually think of as, you know, a lawyer hating joke. Actually what it is, is an anti-authoritarianism line because the idea is when you wipe out the lawyers, you wipe out the rule of law. And that's yeah. really what he wants to do. <clears throat> and I think there are kind of two sides to that. Uh, the first is obviously he's just trying to appeal politically to his base, you know, deep state, DOJ is corrupt. I'm going to fix all that. The other piece of it is simply his love of being a strong man and authoritarian right. uh, as his guiding, you know, navigation <laughs> standard. And that's classic. I mean, what you want to do is you want to get rid of any kind of objective rule of law. And of course, you know, put in your own people, whether they're going to be kind of like authoritarian, uh, you know, 
like a strike squad, Gestapo, yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, the I like to analogize his notion of law enforcement and even the Secret Service to him to be like a Praetorian guard. Uh, they yeah. can just be completely personally loyal to him. And when you put in your own AG, you know, at DOJ, the way he tried to do, um, as he tried to overturn the election, that will be a big help for him. Um, and that's very, very dangerous. And the people around him are smart enough to understand it's not just appointing a favorable attorney general. I mean, arguably you had that in Bill Barr yeah. <laughs> and it's, it still didn't quite work. Um, what you have to do is you have to be able to get rid of the career people. Um, and at DOJ, like many other big agencies, it's the career folks that supply the conscience and supply the history, the guardrails uh, of the group. So they understand they need to wipe all that out to do what they want. Yeah, which is the base of the Schedule F thing, right? Which is going in right. and truly doing, you know, gutting out these agencies, internet, intelligence agencies and others to get, get rid of people who aren't loyalists to the Trump agenda or the Republican agenda in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's really... I, you know, I really doubt that Trump understands that concept. He just right. feels that you know, he should be able to hire and fire people as he will. So it's folks who are smarter than that, who are more clever, who are looking at, oh, this is how we actually get rid of the real guardrails in, in the situation. Yeah, I mean, Heritage has brought together, um, Jesus, 75 organizations, I believe, is the is this, this project 2025, funded by $22 million in dark money. Uh, and they're supposedly hiring, they already got a list of vetted people who are going to be the takeover. So it's mm-hmm. it's some really scary stuff when you dig into it. And it, it's given people a lot of uh, fear of of the misuse of our judicial system, which is what the accusation is. And and that transitions to a nice place. As I mentioned in the opening, the New York civil case, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but Elise Stefanik apparently has filed a ethics complaint against Judge Engeron uh, because of his courtroom behavior. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a bit of a travesty, obviously. We, I, where's that going to go, you think? Uh, I don't think that's going to go any place. Yeah. Um, and, and frankly, uh, you know, having been in a lot of courtrooms, a lot of very, uh, I, shall we say, prima donna judges, he doesn't fall into that category. No. He has a reputation um, in New York State as being, you know, a little bit ornery. And that often happens with judges when they've been on the bench for a long time. But I I felt that he's been remarkably restrained, especially given the, uh, I mean, the absolutely historically unprecedented antics of Trump. I mean, everyone talks about all such a historical significance, former presidents on the stand. I mean, what's really historical about it is no defendant in their right mind is going to behave that way. Yeah. And no lawyer in their right mind is going to behave that way unless they're trying to simply disrupt the trial, seek a mistrial, uh, you know, Obviously, they don't want to do this, but you want to argue that your client's mentally unfit to stand trial because he can't control himself. <laughs> it's just remarkable uh, what they were doing. And I think they were doing it to kind of goad Engeron into uh, making more sort of pissed off statements. And they'd have an argument on appeal that, oh, this guy's biased. He just didn't like us. That's why he was ruling this way. And I think they really failed. I, I think he quite easily just, you know, stayed in his lane. Yeah. And it was really interesting the, the tail end of Trump's testimony. Uh, Engron was much quieter. 
Uh, right. Kind of like the AG lawyer did the same thing of sort of like, you know, just let him talk himself yeah. out. And the testimony actually took less time because they didn't give him anything to really focus on in terms of arguments. So I think that worked out very well for him. Yeah, I saw your piece on that. That was a great way to put it. It's like, you know, again, it's uh, we say that a lot. When, when your enemy is, you know, making a mistake, just let him. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? And, and, and the thing about Trump is he can't control himself. His ego yeah. is too big. He, he, I think he literally didn't he essentially admit to the, to the whole point of this thing, which he, he has different numbers he uses for different things. I mean, it's essentially the whole piece yeah. of the case, right? Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, like you're saying about his ego, it goes back to his notion of being, you know, the, the man in charge, whether it's of a small family company or of the country. His point is, I know better than anyone else. I get to do what I want. And this was what I was doing with, you know, no concept that that's basically what you're being accused of in, in that trial. So, so you are making those admissions. Wow. It's just great. Now explain what for the, maybe a lot of my viewers may not understand what happens. So let's, it's already been decided. They, they were, they lied, right? It's, this is essentially the penalty phase as, as my understanding. What is, what could be really the outcome of this? I mean, what's, what's a realistic expectation of what may be the outcome of this if he, if the judge rules against him? Yeah. Before uh, we got to this penalty phase, before we got to Trump testifying, uh, I think a realistic expectation to me is they probably get hit with pretty close to the entire uh, fine that was being asked for the 250 million. Uh, I was not so sure that he would, uh, the judge would impose what's called a corporate death penalty, meaning you can't do business in New York anymore. Cause that that's pretty harsh. And it's to me, it'd be more reasonable to say, you know, basically disgorge, you know, profits that you've made. That's probably much more than 250 K, but yeah. that would be the punishment. But I have to say, after Trump's performance, and particularly with this issue of how they've been attacking the judge's law clerk, uh, which is really just way, way out of line, that I think his testimony, the fact that Eric, Don Jr., and and Ivanka, who was much more controlled in, in her testimony, everybody distances themselves and uses the same line, which is, you know, we didn't really have anything to do with it. You know, let's blame the accountants. And to some extent, they're saying, look, it, it's dad's personal finances. We don't have anything to do with that. We, we don't know if he you know, put out X or Y about his financial statements. When you combine that with Trump's uh, perspective and testimony on the stand, I, I actually think the judge may impose that ultimate penalty for them in New York, which is to say you can't do business wow. here again because nobody can trust your books. Nobody can trust the assertions that you're making. Right. And, they, and they've made that clear that they and they have no intention of changing, too. I think there's there's no remorse or any acknowledgement there was a mistake right. made. So, yeah, it does make a lot of sense to me what you're saying, because they, they have shown no interest whatsoever in the truth uh, or any admission of, of failing. And of course, they still keep walking on the courtroom saying we're going to win this thing. Like you already lost, bro. It's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really exactly. And yeah. obviously everything they do is for PRs, for political fundraising. They'll, they'll right. make the money. Um, yeah. And so what does that mean then? That that death penalty, how does that translate? Because you see people saying, well, he'll lose Mar-a-Lago, he'll lose Trump Tower. What does that death penalty mean and how does that translate the real world? Uh, they'll have to probably appoint uh, some kind of a special master to figure out how they close down those businesses. I mean, they're, they're complex in terms of what are the actual assets? Right. You know, what does it mean you can't run them anymore? There's a question of can you set up a new company in Florida, let's say, and kind of like run the same assets from there. So there's a lot to kind of detangle yeah. once that happens. Um, but obviously, it'll be a huge problem for them having to dismantle or reconstruct uh, the entire setup 
for themselves. And, and I think that's what really, uh, where you're going to see some devil in the details yeah. there. I think ultimately here, you, you might even see this all venture that he may ultimately, uh, turn against his lawyers because like you were saying, it's all PR to them and that's fine. You know, doing that on the steps of the courthouse, say what you want, just like your client can, but inside the courtroom, that is not a good approach for them to have taken. I mean, the approach they should have taken is look, mistakes were made, <laughs> uh, but they were honest mistakes. Maybe we weren't paying enough attention. You know, maybe we trusted too much, but we're, we're not disputing that, that there's error here, right. but it's just that we weren't really trying to do something wrong. And if they'd taken that tactic, I, I think you get a little bit more sympathy um, from yeah. the fact finder in this case, the court. But as you're saying, the, the approach they've taken, as usual, PR is no different than legal arguments to them. I just think that's going to result in, in a very bad ending for them. Yeah. And, and they don't do humble. They don't do humble appreciation of anything. Right. They'll never right. admit they're wrong. So, well, that's really interesting. I'm really glad you just couldn't explain it to me. You know, you did a piece um, that I was thought was, I was fascinating and it, it does do it more, you know, away from the courtroom world, but also the, the law. Uh, and you, you've been really foot because obviously your practice law is a lot on campus on student mm -hmm. law, student issue, issues, the cancel culture stuff. And it's pretty interesting. And it is a hot topic right now. The free speech, obviously we're in the middle mm -hmm. of a very, really crazy moment right with between a lot of anti-semitism also a lot of islamophobia the, the 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 damage being done to our national discourse and to everything from the hamas uh, israel war um and you had a great piece talking about how these billionaires are trying to force students essentially break their will or break their free speech right. i mean where is that going and and i'd love to hear your perspective on that yeah you know i think there are um Two sides to that, which is what we usually think about in terms of uh, the, the right wing, if you're a liberal, kind of using their wealth to impose their notions of what is okay to talk about, things they don't like become hate speech. And now for the first time, we're, we're kind of seeing it more obviously on the liberal side. And it's not a question actually to me of the content of the speech. It's a question of very rich, very powerful people feel that they have the right to leverage that wealth and privilege into controlling speech. They may not think of it that way. And I think it's very fascinating. The theme is always going to be not that they're trying to infringe speech, but the speech that they don't like becomes hate speech of, of some kind. And they always turn it that way. So what you're seeing with the universities and the Hamas Israel conflict is these universities already have codes about hate speech, harassment. I mean, I have a lot of clients, so I'm defending against things like that. Yeah. They don't really need somebody like Bill Ackerman telling them, okay, you know, you better take this stand. You better do this. You better do that. What they should have done if I were advising them is come out very quickly. I'm not sure why they were yeah. dilly dallying so long. Come out really quickly and hard, you know, to say this is a horrible attack. We condemn any kind of violence. We condemn any kind of hate and everybody calm down, make sure you don't turn on each other over this. But then when people do turn on each other as bound to happen in, in a very passion, impassioned situation, then from the campus point of view, you kind of prosecute it. What they do is you would, if someone, you know, draws something, if they rip down things, if they're chanting things, then there are violations that, that they could enforce. But yeah. they face a real moment here, Fred, mm -hmm. where if these big donors are saying, hey, you know, we're going to band together and yank your donations if you don't do X, you know, that's a real moment for them to shine and say, look, what we're doing is to protect our students, protect 
their safety and protect their minds. We want to have discourse and we're not going to bend to this kind of pressure, you know, but that that's a tough stand, but it yeah. will be a courageous stand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a hot time too. And that's, that's what the heat of the passions of the moment. This is real world stuff. People are dying and, and the passions right. are, but you're right. A lot of them on both sides are getting extremely extreme and there's no way to avoid that. And I've been on those campuses in hot times. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a tough battle to wade into, but you're absolutely right. Um, with that, I'm going to take a break. We have some great sponsors this week. I would love to, hear from all those guys hey look everyone knows how annoying cheap razors are the cuts the irritation the frustration and don't get me started on subscription razor services the headaches they can cause if they show up on your doorstep that's why you got to meet henson shaving henson shaving is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts of the iss and the mars rover and now they're bringing precision engineering to your shaving experience and, and i'm an old pilot so i love me some aerospace manufacturing let me tell you now razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more wobble. The more wobble, the more nicks, cuts, and scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. By using aerospace grade CNC machines, Henson makes metal razors that extend just 0.0013 inches, which is less than the width of a hair. That means a secure and stable blade with a vibration-free shave. It gets better. The razor's built-in channels to evacuate hair and cream and makes clogging virtually impossible. So seriously, Henson Shaving wants the best razor, not the best razor business. That means no plastic, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. The Henson razor works with standard dual-edged razor blades to give you that old-school shave, like me, with the benefits of new-school tech. So once you own a Henson razor, it's only about... I don't know, three to five dollars per year to replace the blades. So I tell you, I don't shave often, obviously. But my first shave with the Henson razor was incredibly refreshing. The design is sleek and the durability is top notch. The Henson razor is truly so much better than your run-of-the-mill razor. And it's you know, the quote-unquote traditional razor bland that you're used to. Now, the affordability factor is absolutely game-changing. No more wasting your money on expensive blades. With Henson shaving, you can get like a year of blades for around five dollars. So, it's time to say no to subscriptions, say yes to a razor that's lasts you a lifetime. Visit hansonshaving.com slash Fred to pick the razor for you and use code Fred and you'll get two years worth of blades free with your razor. Just make sure to add them to your cart. Two years of blades. So, that's 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G.com slash Fred and use code Fred when you're there. Check them out. You know, someone told me there are science-backed ingredients that could help me feel 15 years younger in just a matter of months. I wouldn't have believed it. Well, then I tried Qualia Senolytics. You know, as we age, everyone accumulates senescent cells in their body. Senescent cells cause symptoms of aging, such as aches and pains, slow workout recoveries, sluggish mental and physical energy that I know so well, all associated with that middle-aged feeling. Now, also known as zombie cells, they're old and worn out and serving a no useful function for your health anymore, but they're taking up space and nutrients from our healthy cells. You know, much like pruning the yellow and dead leaves and plants in my garden, Qualia Senolytic removes those worn out senescent cells to allow for the rest of them to thrive in your body. You take it just two days a month. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, as well as gluten-free. And the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in the combined effect 
of all the ingredients together. But best of all, on top of all that, you have a 100-day money-back guarantee. And since taking Qualia Analytics, I have had higher energy levels, I feel 15 years younger, more productive, enthusiastic in life, not to mention, importantly for me, less aches and pains. Now, resist aging at the cellular level. Try Qualia Analytics. Go to neurohacker.com slash Fred for up to $100 off and then use code Fred at checkout for an additional 15% off. That's neurohacker.com slash Fred for an extra 15% off of your purchase. And man, thanks Neurohacker for sponsoring our show. Good to be back. So thanks. To, yeah, that's a, I mean, what you're doing there is a great conversation, but let's take it back to DC, I think, um, which is where you're at too. Um, there's a lot going on with the Supreme Court, right? The, w- between the idea of, yeah. of imposing an ethics code, the, the, the pushback from from uh, from Scalia and others, they don't, they don't want an ethics code put in them, to the attempts to find out how um, you know <laughs> Supreme Court has been purchased by rich people like Harlan Crow. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you saw it, but of course the the Senate Judiciary they they were going to subpoena these gentlemen. Uh, I think was it, I think it was Harlan Crow and other. And mm-hmm. Leonard Leo, right? And then instead, the right. Republicans had put in sixty different or ninety different um, amendments, flooding mm-hmm. the flood the zone with amendments that can't be worked through on time. So they've actually dropped the idea of subpoenaing. Where does this stand, and 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 where do you see this going as far as the Senate trying to at least impose some sort of rules around the Supreme Court when so many people? I mean, all of us. I, I look. There's very few people left who don't believe our Supreme Court has been compromised in some way with the influence of these billionaires. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a moment, I think, where Congress really has to stand up for itself and have some spine on both sides of the aisle. Because over the years, you know, the Supreme Court has really emerged as the dominant branch of government. And I don't think that's what was obviously intended. A lot of that is by deferring to these nine unelected people you get to kind of punt and say, hey, it wasn't us. It wasn't us legislators. It wasn't us, the executive branch. You know, it was the court decided this. And politically, that gives people good cover. But realistically, what it's done is it has turned them into the final arbiters of not just law and constitutionality, but you kind of shoehorn everything under that yeah. now. So they're, they're in the position of making all the decisions about, you know, school curriculums, yeah. where the people wear masks, you know, OSHA's safety guidelines, what can the CDC do? These are a group of judges. They are not massive content experts across the board in all guises of life. Right. So that's really got to stop. And, and so I don't think they should have withdrawn those subpoenas. I, you know, I understand the cleverness of what the Republicans did, but they really need to stand up and try to insist. They have the purse strings after all. Right. They need to insist that there is a code of ethics. It's just preposterous that the highest court in the land is the only court that has no accountability, has no code of ethics. Um, And on the executive branch side, you know, I have to say I have a lot of respect for Merrick Garland. I think he's a very honorable man. Um, But I think there needs to be some more fire there. And they should open an investigation into very precisely the honesty of the financial disclosures that were made. And sure, Thomas, Alito, others can argue to DOJ that, look, this was fuzzy. We didn't have to do this because of blankety blank versus Alito writing editorials in the Wall Street Journal describing it. But there should be some integrity to that, not just letting them blab about it and taking their word for it. (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, again, we all grew up. I mean, you know, schoolhouse rock, right? Checks and balances. I mean, this is a schoolhouse. This is, I I call these schoolhouse rock issues, (laughs) right? We were growing up with the basic tenets of our government, which is the the checks and balances. And it's a schoolhouse rock issue is if it just seems like, like you said, two of the branches have decided not to do their part of the checks and balances beyond appointing these people. Uh, And then from then on, they're, they're freewheeling to do what they wish. And clearly, clearly they feel that way. I mean, obviously Judge Thomas and these others feel like they're Alito that they are above the law. I mean, there's no way to argue otherwise that they don't believe the rules apply to them in the same as the others. It's it's baffling to me that people of ethics who are on the highest court can look in the mirror and say that, no, these rules don't apply to us as they do others. Um, is there right. movement amongst them? Because I have heard rumors that, you know, Katanji Brown and others are like, no, I'll, I'll sign that shit. <laughs> you know, is there enough <laughs> pressure within the the liberal court or is it, I don't really understand that the, the nuances of those in relationships, of course. You know, I think that particularly the the newer justices, you know, if you talk to them one by one, they'd probably all say, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, we actually do abide by an ethics code. You know, I would sign something right. like that. Um, but I think what they it's interesting because they have a built in bias, too. I mean, talk about the way that we were raised with the schoolhouse rock. They've also been raised with this notion that the independence of the judiciary is somehow now tied into the idea that no one can look at them. Right. And that's not really true. I mean, it's true to the extent that, you know, you don't want people like claiming, oh, you know, if you don't vote my way, you know, I'm going to go dig into your taxes, you know, a la Nixon. One dollar salary, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, But that doesn't mean that there can't be accountability that you don't have to disclose anything. So I think part of the problem of the culture within the court is, you know, however well-intentioned they may be, they themselves don't even understand what the kind of institutional problem there is for them being there. And that's why people outside of the court have to come in and impose that accountability on them and impose that ethical discipline on them, really. I mean, it's the ultimate bubble, isn't it? I mean, you know, I, I, I served in the Army for, you know, 22 years. I, I actually, the latter part of my career was was spent working with general officers. And mm-hmm. and when a guy's been a general, like, say, like David Petraeus, by the time they retire, they've been a general for 15 years or so. I mean, it's a long time. And, and you get within a bubble at a certain point. There is a bubble that's created around people at that level in life. Uh, I saw it in, in the military. I can't imagine what it must be like. To be a Supreme Court justice, one of nine of the most powerful judicial people in the country, if not the world, right? And and uh, right. and I think that bubble. I, I just wonder sometimes how much the bubble has affected them, especially. I mean, how long has Thomas been there? I mean, my God, 30, 40 years. I mean, it's insane. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I I think you're exactly right. I think that bubble changes people. Uh, it's also interesting, of course, you know, for for folks you know who may have come from a more classically privileged background. Bubbles a lot longer than since they yeah. became a federal judge. Yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> it, it predates that, so it gets even worse. You know, right. once they get that job. Right, that's a really good point. We we've had some more working class judiciary lately. <laughs> it right. seems like so. If we, we get it's a really good point too. It's a very good point. I'd be remiss if I don't if I don't let you drive off without talking about um, impeachment. I'm doing air quotes for those who are listening. <laughs> the impeachment, um, as we know, I, I don't know if you saw this article. There was an article today in the Post, I believe, that talking about how when Speaker John. 
Johnson met with the moderate members of the Republican candidate, which, by the way, I, I should do air quotes on that, the moderate members, because that's also bullshit. Uh, but the moderate member, they actually, he actually said apparently out loud that um, now that Biden's polls are sort of down, that the political imperative for the impeachment is not as powerful. Uh, however, Comer has issued <laughs> subpoenas for Hunter Biden, James Biden in this, this, this feckless pursuit. Where do we stand on that? And what, is the, what does this next phase mean when they're actually trying to issue subpoenas? Well, I think just to go on the political front for one sec, like you were saying, I actually think if I were in Biden's camp, I'd be welcoming them opening that inquiry and serving the subpoenas because it would probably help them in the polls. I mean, much taking a page from Trump's uh, playbook. Yeah. They're, I mean, their next step is they can issue the subpoenas, uh, and then there's going to be a question of whether people are going to fight the subpoenas. And that's, again, going to be a tactical question because you can certainly fight them. We've seen that. And then it gets litigated and it gets delayed. <laughs> it gets drawn out to see whether or not you actually have to show up or not. And so that's one tactic. The other tactic is simply to say, fine, you know, I honor subpoenas. I'm not going to quibble about it. You know, I'll show up, you know, ask your questions. And judging from the performance so far, they're not going to have very good questions and they're not really going to get anything. I mean, it's all sort of promising what they're going to uncover about the President Biden's corruption and the stuff they've come up with so far, it, it, it's really less than zero. I mean, it's hard for them to even explain how they're trying to connect the dots. When you listen to some of them answer, you know, why they think there's some relationship to Hunter Biden having had one bank account, which someone else used in the same bank. I mean, it's just ridiculous. They have right. nothing there. So I think it's just a tactical question, ultimately a political question. Do these folks want to challenge the subpoenas or do they just want to show up and say, hey, I'm honoring the system and, you know, ask away. Right. And and the other part, of course, that has been it's not an official impeachment inquiry. Um, therefore, there are certain rules, that, there are certain things they can't do, uh, which has been a point that a lot of folks have made that, that, that a lot of these subpoenas can be ignored a lot easier because this isn't an official impeachment inquiry. And then, of course, the Democrats have done a brilliant job of of being, you know, I wouldn't say defense in this case, but punching holes in their in their arguments so exquisitely well. I mean, the the members of the judiciary, especially, are very very good, and the oversight committee both have been excellent because that is the danger that I think that it seems like Comer and and Jim, uh, you know, Jordan keep forgetting is that there's also about you know two thirds of that committee or whatever you know half that committee is Democrats, and they're very very smart Democrats, and they keep making fools of these guys and punching holes in their argument. They don't they have a worthy opponent who is aware of just how ridiculous this is, right? Yeah, and I also think, you know, this is venturing and putting on my political analyst hat, but the reason that they're so vulnerable to that is they're actually still playing as usual, you know, to, to their base, which is perhaps the ever-shrinking one. But all those posturing moves that they make, it's not even to convince their folks across the aisle, their opponents, that, yeah, we ought to do this. They actually, in some ways, think they'll just benefit from it when they say, we tried to do this, but we were stopped, and that's right. what they're all trying to campaign on and uh, you know maybe that'll work for their campaigns and they won't get primary but ultimately it certainly isn't contributing anything towards good governance well that's the thing i mean the government's about to shut down they're wasting their time on this they're wasting their time on reducing salaries to a dollar as i mentioned previously i mean it, it is it is feckless at best and the issues they're running on as we saw this last week as i mentioned at the top of the show aren't working right <laughs> you know they, they really thought they had they, they thought they really thought they had the key with this you know i was really interested in the virginia results 
um, with Youngkin saying this 15-week ban uh, would be the key. They, a lot of them were really piling on that, saying, well, this is going to be, this is the winner right here. We, we, we're not we're not really banning. You're still going to have 15 weeks. And it looks like apparently that was completely obliterated in this. So the the political ramifications are still being felt because the, they don't understand the legal ramifications of what people feel, I think. Oh, I, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, trying to, I think to the average person, when you hear that they're latching on to this 15-week thing, it just seems so obvious that they're trying to use that as like, you know, a magic slogan to suddenly use to escape what they had worked for such a long time to get. I mean, a lot of people use this analogy, but, you know, it's the dog chasing the car and they're not knowing what to do when they catch up to the car. And really, it's they, you know, they catch up to the car and the car runs them over. <laughs> so, so that's what's really happening here. Yeah. Well, I say it a lot is, is women don't get a break. It, a lot of the political pundits, I'm, I'm sure you heard it in DC and you see it on CNN, is saying, well, there, there is this belief, this foolish belief that like most issues, the further we got away from the, the Dobbs decision, the more the anger would grow down. But I keep pointing out when I talk that Women don't get a vote. Women don't get a choice in avoiding the, the the idea of reproductive rights. They wake up every day and monitor the reproductive system. They they worry about getting pregnant every time they they sleep. You know they have uh, intercourse with someone. These are real issues for women. They have to deal with every single day, no matter how long from Dobbs it was. Women don't get a break from this issue, and I think they've really underestimated that the length of that pain because they did, a lot of folks preach the approach this just like any other Supreme Court decision or any other political decision. I think, uh, I think that's one they're, they're not, they still don't get it as obviously as Ohio shows. They, they really don't get how angry people are. Yep. I, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, that sort of passion, that sort of anger, the everyday reality of what women deal with, you know, that's not solved because some GOP politician latches onto the phrase, it's 15 weeks. Right. It doesn't change a damn thing. Right. <laughs> Right. Well, this is great. Well, I appreciate you, sir. I appreciate you joining. Where can people find you other than as well, obviously on CNN, but where can they find you online and hunt you down? Well, uh, you can hunt me down on Twitter at Shamlin Wu. <laughs> that's the best place. Uh, that's the one piece of social media that, you know, I really try to attend to. Um, and I try to answer folks a, a lot as well. So I'm uh, happy to find you there. Let me get you on threads too. It's booming right now. So I'm having a good time on threads. It's not as angry all the time <laughs> so, and the engagement's great too I'm, I mean, yeah i'm on there I might as well i'm really enjoying threads so really appreciate it. thank you so much for joining us i know you're busy obviously you're out and about so thanks for joining us on friday afternoon and appreciate all you do lomi is the only appliance that prevents food waste from sticking up your kitchen and polluting the planet now that i've invested in lomi it's changed the way i deal with my food waste lomi is the biggest innovation in the modern day kitchen since the dishwasher it's helped me turn my home into a climate solution. And now I can transform my organic waste into nutrient-rich loamy earth I can feed to my plants, lawn, or garden instead of sending it to the landfill. I can help the environment and make my life easier. In just four hours, loamy transforms almost anything you eat into nutrient-rich plant food at the push of a button. It's smart, simple food recycling that fits my space perfectly. You can cut the chore of doing the trash in half and eliminate bugs and odors in your kitchen. And here's a bonus. You get to feed your lawn and garden with an all-natural fertilizer that you just created out of your food scraps. All my food scraps, be it plant clippings, even those leftovers I forgot in the back of the fridge can go into my garden, helping me grow more nutritious food at home. I learned that food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint. By reducing the amount of food I send to the landfill, I'm helping do my part for the planet. 
Now, whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or, you know, just like me, grow just a really beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Now, head to Lomi.com slash Fred. Use the promo code Fred to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off and you head to Lomi.com slash Fred. Use promo code Fred at checkout. Thank you to Lomi for sponsoring this episode. We appreciate your support. Did you know poor sleep causes weight gain, mood issues, poor mental health, and lower productivity? Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health and performance in our days. And having a consistent nighttime routine is non-negotiable. And let me tell you, when I don't get enough sleep, trust me, you do not want to be around me the next day. Introducing Beam Dream. You know, we've been raving about Beam's Dream Powder, their healthy hot cocoa for sleep. And today, my listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder, their best-selling healthy hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now, here's the best part. It's available in some delicious seasonal flavors like cinnamon cacao, sea salt caramel, and white chocolate peppermint. Better sleep that's really, honestly, never tasted better. Dream contains a powerful, all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. A recent clinical study revealed that Dream helped 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed, and 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. You just mix Beam Dream into hot water or milk, you stir or froth, and enjoy before bedtime. I personally tried Beam Dream, and it certainly lived up to the hype. It was delicious, and I had a really lovely nighttime routine with it. And second, and most importantly, honestly, it helped me fall asleep and stay asleep. Find out why Forbes and New York Times are all talking about Beam and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes and business professionals. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, take advantage of their biggest sale of the year. Get up to 50% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com Fred. This discount's auto-applied at checkout, so you don't need to worry about the code. Just shopbeam.com Fred for up to 50% off this great seasonal sale. Man, Beam, thanks for being a sponsor of our show. All right, good catching up. Got some legal stuff. I, I, I'm diving into Ben's work uh, and Popak, but uh, I hope they're not jealous. <laughs> Shan's a great guy, and I appreciate him taking time for us while he's on the road. Uh, obviously, a lot of issues there. Um, on the same time, um, we did talk about, I, I hope you catch the video we did about Project 2025. I'm going to do more of those. Um, this project is is really eye-opening. Um, if you catch that video, it's blowing up because there's some really serious issues of taking away your rights, dismantling the government, um, Scary, scary stuff. So check that out when you get a chance. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that it's Veterans Day. Uh, today, of course, the Friday the 10th is a Marine Corps birthday, Semper Fi Marines. <laughs> if you know any Marines, they've already told you that. But, you know, <laughs> my dad was a Marine and we had to celebrate the Marine Corps birthday every year. Uh, but of course, the 11th is Veterans Day. I'm a veteran, as many of you obviously know, there's veteran stuff littered everywhere. Uh, I am I served 22 years in the Army and so many of my brothers and sisters. And I remind you again, I remind you again, Veterans Day. Veterans Day honors those who serve, who live, right? Those the, the ones who have said your brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, grandfathers who who took on the unit from the United States and served their nation, be it in combat or not. And a veteran is a veteran. Uh, whereas Memorial Day, of course, Memorial Day is the day we honor those we lost and, and those who have fallen. But this is one for the living. So I try to be more positive about Veterans Day than I am about Memorial Day. And I, I kind of, I have a good time for Veterans Day. And then, so we're going to go go get that free blooming onion. You deserve it. <laughs> I, think, I think there's some pretty good deals out there for Veterans Day. More importantly, national 
parks are free the entire day uh, for any veteran who served. You can go on in to any national park in the country for free tomorrow. I'm going to take advantage of that right here in the Missouri area. I can't enjoy some of our national park, get some fresh air. So in the meantime, happy Veterans Day to all my fellow veterans and those who served. I'm a proud member of the military service member. Uh, my family served literally since before there was a country. Uh, we had an ancestor in the French and Indian War. We had a, a Minuteman at the Boston Alarm. We fought all the way through the war. Uh, my father was in the World War II as a Marine uh, working on aircraft. Uh, so we've we've been in the service a long time. It's gone to my next generation. My son-in-law serves. My son serves. So um, the military is that kind of a world. Uh, and so I hope if you know any veterans, uh, let them know you appreciate their service and uh, and be positive about it because a lot of us have some fond memories, hard memories. It is a tough business, but it's also pretty funny sometimes. So anyway, happy Veterans Day to all my fellow service members. In the meantime, you know where we are right here on the Myest Touch Network every week, Friday night. You can get all of my little hot takes that I do. I've had several go out this week. Um, you can find us on Substack. I'd love you to go on our Substack. It's really growing now fast. Had some really cool events. I had a Zoom last night with my friend Rachel Vinman on, on her Substack. That's fpwellman.substack.com. As always, I urge you and I, I hope you'll come out and check out Forgotten Democrats. I'm very proud to be the national chairman of Forgotten Democrats. More so than ever right now. If you don't know about Speaker Mike Johnson, Mike Johnson, in the majority of his races for higher office from state legislature to Congress, was unopposed. Unopposed. The majority of his election was unopposed or underopposed. And that's how we got a speaker who claims he doesn't have a bank account and yet owns property all over Louisiana, uh, who is in Paris, France right now giving a speech, uh, VIP treatment overseas instead of doing his job as Speaker of the House that he just got three weeks ago. These unvetted, untouched congressional members are the bane of our existence. So Forgotten Democrats is very simple. You join. It's a donation, a monthly donation is what our model is. And your money goes directly to these candidates. The majority of our money will go straight to be distributed among the candidates who need it the most first. So people in those races where they can't raise money in tough places, they will get the money before anyone else. And then it goes up from there. So I'd love you to check it out. Forget, uh, you can, the easy way to join our email list is simply texting FRED to 33777. Or you can go straight to ForgottenDemocrats.org and, and sign up and, and join. I'd love you to see you there. So it's great. We have fun events. We have one coming up next week. So with that, thanks for joining the show. As always, a great week. I love seeing you here. Say hi. And I'll see you next week, next week right here on the Minus Touch Network. 